when I'm feeling a bit low or if I'm feeling a bit out of sorts, then I go for a walk. And if I can make it a walk in the countryside, so much the better. Because I was just reading last week that there's some research now that suggests that it's beneficial to hear birdsong and that birdsong we connect with in some deep, visceral way, and that lifts our spirits. You might well recognise that voice. It belongs to the former, very senior BBC executive, radio presenter, and now fellow podcaster, Matthew Bannister. And he is going to be here to discuss the virtues of walking in nature, listening to extraordinarily beautiful music and uplifting our well-being and more besides. Welcome to the Lizal Wellbeing Show. I'm Lizal, and this is the podcast that celebrates ways to live a better second half of life, to live and to age well. And of course, part of this is getting out and about into nature for fresh air and a bit of a marvel at the natural world around us. Maybe you're about to do that very thing over the New Year break. Well, I have certainly enjoyed working off just a few of the mince pie overloads by togging up and herding the family outside, sometimes under protest, but always, I have to say, always feeling the better for it. And someone who not only feels similar, but who has taken this principle onto a whole other level is Matthew Bannister, host of the award-winning podcast, Folk on Foot. And this sees him going for long walks in our beautiful British countryside, everywhere from Sandwood Bay in Scotland to Port Isaac in Cornwall with his favourite folk musicians. The weather coming in here can be incredible. It's beautiful today. But uh, you can imagine it on a really stormy night. There's no be... shelter. No. There's no. nowhere to hide, is there, if a storm comes in? It must in be the amazing. Air. It must be amazing. My co writer on a lot of the music we created for Sandwood, Hamish Napier, he visited once. He took about a thousand photos. The day that he was here, he took this amazing panorama south from Ambuachal up to the cliffs of Cape Wrath. And Ambuja was framed in blue sky and Cape Wrath was framed in blue sky. And in the middle was this incredible blackness and uh, there was even red tinge to it. And it was this incredible storm that was coming in. Oh, it feels deeply relaxing, doesn't it? Just listening to the gentle sounds of local wildlife and rustling of leaves as Matthew talks and walks with his guests. And it's no wonder that he feels that getting out in nature, feeling the breeze, hearing the birdsong is vital for his well-being. And we'll hear from him in person in just a moment. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. 
Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Matthew, it's such a pleasure to chat to you. I so enjoyed meeting you in person at the BBC in a sound studio. So it's great to have you here on the podcast. And I was just so amazed to hear that you are a fellow podcaster working in the world of well-being. So can we just talk a little bit to that and, and what your take on this is? Yes, of course. And it's lovely to be with you, Liz, and to talk to you about my podcast, Folk on Foot, which sounds like a simple concept. It's where I go walking with folk musicians, top folk musicians from across the United Kingdom and Ireland in the landscapes that have inspired their music. And we have a conversation and then, crucially, they play and sing for me on location, wherever we happen to be, up a hill or in a valley or, or whatever. Do they take their kit with them then? So you're, you're walking with instruments? We are. We, there's been, there have been one or two in, you know, occasions. We recently had to move a concert-sized harp halfway up what? a mountain, which was you know, one of those times when I started checking my insurance policy. Um, <laughs> but, but usually it's a fiddle or a guitar or something mm. a bit more portable. Uh, but yes, they bring their instruments um, and, uh, and... and you want to talk about it as an impact on well-being. And I think um, I, I should quote the reviewer in The Telegraph who, who said this about Folk on Foot, the music is transcendent, the sense of place is transporting, and if you need escape from illness, from politics, from anything, it's a restorative breathing space in sound. And I love that, a wow. restorative breathing space in yeah. sound. And we get that feedback from our listeners all the time that they, they often put their headphones in and go for a walk with us, um, and yes. it transports them away from the cares of their daily lives um, and allows them to have a, a moment of reflection um, and a moment of calm before they head back into the, uh, into, into the melee that they live in. That's really wonderful. That's wonderful to know that when we are out for our walks and hopefully we are all getting outside and getting the benefits of nature, that we can take somebody, a fellow walker, who's also walking on foot while listening to the music. That's, it is a genius idea. And I'd, I'd like to ask you, actually, what came first, really? Was it the walking or was it the folk music? Well, the thing about this is that it really is my perfect job. And it, it takes me right back to my teenage years because I, I was born and brought up in Sheffield, which is right next to the Peak District. Um, and when I was... Uh, a teenager, my parents often insisted that we should go walking in the Peak District, sometimes under protest, I have to say. <laughs> but I did get used to the idea of walking in the countryside. And I also walked a lot in the city because I didn't have any money. And so if I was out late with friends or whatever, I would walk back across the city late at night. And that was another time that gave me a great deal of uh, of time for reflection. So there was there was that aspect of, of my life. And then folk music came into my life also in the 1970s when I was a teenager. I heard a band called Fairport Convention um, mm. who made this amazing album called Legion Leaf, which is known as one of the great classics of folk rock. Um, and I, I, was, I didn't really know I was looking for this, but I found in it um, a sense of Englishness, 
uh, a sense of connecting to my culture that I, I hadn't found anywhere else in the kind of American rock and roll that I'd been listening to before. And I, I was playing the fiddle at the time. Really? And um, so the fiddle until then had been rather a boring instrument of scales and arpeggios and, and things like that. And having heard this album, I realised that the fiddle could be this amazing electronic instrument uh, playing folk music and, and changing it into a contemporary idiom. So I started my own folk band. And so I was in a folk band in, in the, around the, touring around the clubs in Sheffield. Mm. In fact, my first appearance on the radio wasn't as a broadcaster. It was playing the fiddle on the folk show on BBC Radio Sheffield. Um, so folk music and walking were, were big in my life. And my whole career has been about telling stories in sound. Yes. And that's what this podcast does. Right from the outset, we were determined that it would be beautiful to listen to mm. and that the quality of the production is what we invest in. Yes. And as you can imagine, it's quite tricky. Well, how, how do you do it logistically? Do you take a crew with you? And I mean, how easy is it to in open spaces to get that connection with the acoustics that you need for music, live music? Well, it's it's challenging, right. I can tell you. And we have very, very talented producers. So I take a producer with me who you know records the sound and it's astonishing what results you can get um, with just a, a stereo microphone or a pair of microphones standing in the middle of a field uh, with, with somebody playing music. And one of the things that we were worried about when we started out was um, that the musicians wouldn't, allow us to do this because they'd be worried about the quality of the recording. But in fact, um, the quality has been so outstanding that one of our producers won the Gold Award for Best Music Producer at the Audio Production Awards really? a couple of years ago for her work on Folk on Foot. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, our enemy is wind. Yes, of course. Frankly. I mean, yes. we've recorded in rain yeah. okay. and that just creates a sort of dappling sound on the, on the microphones. But wind can create this dreadful, distorting, mm. rushing noise. So there was an episode when we went recording with a band called The Young'uns in Hartlepool, where they come from. And they got this song about a medieval gate on the seafront, which is still there, where the fisher folk used to land their catchers from the beach. And so I said, oh, it'd be great if you sang the song Standing in the Gate. But of course, there was this howling gale blowing through when we did that. So we took a photograph of them there and went round the back and recorded the song behind some wheelie bins <laughs> where it was sheltered. <laughs> Not quite so romantic, is it? No. What have been your favourite places to record? Do you record in, in huge landscapes or do you like the intimacy of, say, a woodland setting or a forest walk? Do you have a preferred option? Well, I think the variety is the great thing. I mean, we've been to some incredibly remote places. We've been to Orkney and to Shetland and recorded on, on the beach there. We had an amazing time with a, a musician called Chris Drever on Orkney who wrote a song called Scapa Flow 1919, which is all about the scuttling of the German Navy off the coast of Orkney just after the First World War. Apparently, the, the Navy was captured and the Admiral in charge of the fleet ordered them to open the seacocks and the whole lot went right down to the bottom of the sea as an act of protest. And Chris had written a song about this and he played it for us on the beach overlooking Scapa Flow, this great natural harbour, where that incident happened. So that, that was amazing. We went to Sandwood Bay in the very northwestern tip of Scotland, which is a four-mile walk from the nearest car park. So you set off to walk, and I went with a fiddle player called Duncan Chisholm, who'd written a whole album of music inspired by this beautiful white sand bay. And we got there. There was nobody else there, and it was a, a bright day, although it was quite windy and quite 
cold, but there was a really bright sunshine. And we mm. stood on the beach talking about this amazing seascape that we could see. And then he picked up his fiddle and began to play the music inspired by that sea. And oh. it was just sent shivers. I was going to say, I'm, I'm getting goosebumps just listening to you talking about it. You kind of seem to have carved yourself the dream job. Yes, it is. It is my dream. And I mean, what's wonderful about podcasting is that I didn't have to ask anybody's permission. <laughs> you know, Because normally in my career, I've had to get programmes commissioned by somebody. Yes. So you've had to, you know, pitch to the BBC or to whoever it is um, and, and get permission and get budgets agreed and all the rest of it. But this is my own passion project and and uh, because of the joys of podcasting i was able to put it out there and see whether an audience would come and, and see whether that audience would support us financially and and i'm mm. delighted to say that they did absolutely brilliant and of course what's been really apparent over the years is the clinically proven benefits of both walking and music actually when it comes to well-being and mental health scientific studies showing that as little as 20 minutes a day literally outside so it doesn't count if you're walking on a treadmill indoors you know there is some connection isn't there with physically being outside whether it's the amount of oxygen that's around us or the fraxal shapes of the leaves on the trees yeah you must be really encouraged that there's all this scientific research going into something such a simple habit that you've been doing for so many decades well and of course you know i'm well aware of that you know because i use it as medicine myself you know so that when i'm feeling a bit low or if i'm feeling a bit out of sorts then i go for a walk and if i can make it a walk in the countryside so much the better because i was just reading last week that there's some research now that suggests that it's beneficial to hear bird song and that birds song we connect with in some deep visceral way and that lifts our spirits and birds have been uh, played a big part in the podcast actually because we you know we were on Fowler Moor in Midlothian in this remote moor and um, a singer called Kareem Polwart was about to start singing and all of a sudden a curlew started circling overhead and you can hear it in the podcast you can hear this amazing curlew cry and sometimes the birds have have acted as kind of accompaniment to the music that we've been recording and all of this is is so good for the spirit you know and that's why I love that review that said we're a restorative breathing space in sound because it's so much more than a bunch of folk musicians standing in a field and 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 the walk by the way Liz the other benefit of a walk is about conversation and connection and I think you have an entirely different kind of conversation on a walk than you do when you're sitting opposite each other in a studio mm. or whether you're, you know, with your friend across a table or whatever. Because, A, th- there's a sense of timelessness, you know. So if you're going on a long walk, and often we spend half a day, you know, a whole day with a with a guest, there's a sense that you can allow the conversation to move in whatever way that it flows and be interrupted by things that happen along the way. Secondly, there's an intimacy that comes out of not being face-to-face. So if you're not sitting looking someone in the eye, but you're walking side by side and the rhythm of the walk is helping you, then I think you get a more intimate and more revelatory conversation than you do when you've got one of these conversations which take place you know, against a deadline in a studio and, and face to face. And I think that's true for people who are not recording as well. You know, yes. it's, it's really good for you to connect with a friend or a partner or whatever. And And sometimes my partner and I, if we're trying to resolve an issue or we're, we're worried about something, we'll go for a walk together to talk mm. about it uh, because it seems so much easier to do it out in the open air and, and in nature. 
You're absolutely spot on and I use it with my children too, particularly if we have to have a difficult conversation, doing things side by side. And that's a lovely analogy, isn't it? Because you are getting alongside somebody in a supportive sense, but also not having that potential confrontation of looking somebody across the table and being maybe a little bit adversarial. And I think you can have those more difficult conversations too. You can bring up issues that might be painful or tricky or go to places that you might not want to go to when you're actually looking somebody in the eye and having to talk about it. Yes, I absolutely agree that it can it, it can be a way of resolving tension as well as learning more about people. I mean, I, I do a thing uh, since the year 2000 with some fr- a group of very close friends and with my family. Um, we started this annual pilgrimage where um, we did it in the year 2000 because we wanted our children to understand that it was 2000 years since the birth of Christ. And not everybody who comes on this pilgrimage, by the way, is religious, but we do a big walk every Easter to a cathedral city. And Mm. we start on the Thursday before Easter Sunday, and then we walk through Good Friday, we stay overnight somewhere, and then we walk through Easter Saturday, and then we arrive in the cathedral city and we attend the service on Easter Sunday. How amazing. And we've been doing that now for 22 years, and we've only missed... We missed one year for foot and mouth and then a couple of years for the pandemic. Yeah. But we've done it every year. And the children have grown up and are now have their own children. So yes. my grandchildren have now been on it. And it is an amazing bonding experience. And on those walks, I have really wonderful and interesting conversations with my friends. And that was part of the inspiration for, for Folk on Foot. That's an amazing thing to do. And I've heard actually of other groups. Interestingly, it seems to be mostly men, but maybe that's just my own experience of people I know who do go off walking and and regularly they'll go off maybe once or twice a year and walk the South Downs or go fell walking. And there is this bonding experience that they all talk about. Something that I've actually thought about doing, I don't know whether you've ever done it or got experience of this, is walking the Camino, Camino de Campostela. No, I haven't, but I'd love to. Um, And um, one of my colleagues who works on Fauconfort has done it, and she speaks very warmly about the experience. And um, that sense of pilgrimage, which doesn't have Mm. to be a religious thing, but but the idea of walking as a group to a destination. I mean, obviously, you know, Chaucer um, was the one who wrote about it first. Um, But there is something wonderful about um, setting an objective like that and walking as a group and learning about the different characters in the group and the group dynamic and uh, how the group interacts. And, of course, what we, we thought that the children, our children, would all bail out as soon as they could, as soon as they could <laughs> be left on their own. Mm. Uh, but but they still come now. And, my you know, my daughter is in her late 30s and uh, my son is 30 two and uh, and they still come um and so do the other family's children because they i think saw some connection in it that they found uh really important and of course they bailed out occasionally along the way but but they still tried to make the effort to be there if they possibly can that is yeah uh, uh, astonishing and i think not only the conversations and the sort of the practicalities of it and the physicality of moving our bodies but i was in germany recently at a fasting retreat and as part of the fast they get you to kind of cleanse your brain as well as your body and to do that we were taken on silent forest walks 
So there was a big group, but actually we weren't allowed to speak. And it was quite nice actually not to have that pressure of talking to strangers and making kind of polite conversation when you perhaps were thinking more inwardly about yourself and considering where you are in life and what's happening in your body and various physical changes. And we were learning about the different almost microbial benefits that come from the atmosphere in forests and how the microbes from the trees talk to the microbes in our gut which as someone who's written about gut health I find completely fascinating because forest bathing and walking in forest is is also a thing isn't it? Yes that's amazing I mean that reminds me actually of one of the most spiritual experiences I've had making the podcast because um, there's an artist called Sam Lee who is also a naturalist, and he does a thing called singing with nightingales. And uh, what you do is you go to a wood, this one was in Sussex, with a group of about 20 people, and you arrive and there's a a campfire and um, some lovely vegetarian food, and then Sam tells you stories about the nightingale and its extraordinary journey back to uh, the UK every year to the same places and the night starts to fall and uh, once it becomes pitch black you know about 11 p.m then you set off on a silent walk the group of, of 20 people in the dark with no light so you're not allowed to carry light so you have mm. to follow carefully the person in front of you yeah. and trust the person in front of you and then uh, you have to keep the silence and gradually you start to hear a nightingale singing and nightingales oh. sing in the middle of the night because this is how they attract their mates uh, these mm-hmm. are the men who are trying to attract the women who are making their migration journey and um, the women choose the ones with the longest and, and strongest song and so you oh. start to hear the nightingale and then the nightingale is so focused on what they are doing that you, they will let you get really close to them in a bush and we all sat down round the bush as the nightingale sang and then oh Sam begins to sing a duet with the nightingale <gasps> in the dark and it is absolutely spiritually uplifting i can't yes. explain exactly why but to hear man and bird in harmony and sometimes he brings another musician so we we had a violin player who played some bach partitas with the nightingale oh. and we just all sat in <laughs> silence in pitch dark in this thicket and listened to this extraordinary duet um and it it marks you that i mean it's 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 something that i'll never forget and and we recorded it all for the podcast uh so that journey and we retraced our steps the next day and sam talked us through what 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 had happened so how would we find that if we go to folk on foot and if we sort of type in nightingale would it come up if you put in sam lee singing with nightingales Mm. you'll find that episode Oh. And, um, you know, singing with nightingales is a thing. So he does it every year. So you can actually go, you can book a place. Wow. That is just sounds epic. And I think interesting to discuss how music is so deeply connected to our emotions and can shift emotions. Do you find that the kind of music you listen to or gravitate towards perhaps will change the way you feel? Yes. What's interesting about this? experience again of recording really close up and in a really intimate way is that sometimes we we just start crying I mean Mm. it is weird I mean we we were we went to North Yorkshire 
to meet a musician called Eliza Carthy, who comes from a long family of folk musicians. Her father, Martin Carthy, is one of the legends of the folk revival of the 1960s, and her mother, Norma Waterson, likewise one of the great singers from the Waterson family. And the Waterson Carthy family, a famous folk singing family. And Eliza said, Oh, do you mind if I ask the family to join us? And we said, Of course, that would be wonderful. Mm. And so they all gathered round the kitchen table in the farmhouse where Eliza grew up and uh, we had to get close with the microphones and to hear these what's called blood harmonies you know these family voices entwining with each other you just start to cry um, because it's so (laughs) powerful and particularly the producer who was listening on headphones Mm. you know was just quite overwhelmed by by hearing it so it has that effect on you but I you know I use music as a kind of mood changer anyway. You know, it's it's something that's been part of the fabric of my life since I was a child. And, you know, I always say that when I move to a new house, the first thing I set up is the sound system because I, I, I like to have music with me and I can use it to lift my mood, to, to make me dance, or I can that's use brilliant. it to, to soothe myself if I'm feeling overwhelmed and it is just it's the one thing I can't live without well you say that and I think so many of us are in that same position but may not realize it and I'll give you an example of this my brother who is a cathedral organist he was based at Canterbury Cathedral until very recently and and a conductor does a lot of work with dementia and people in care homes and who've lost their memory lost their sense of self their spouses will turn up to visit them and they have no idea who they are. You know, obviously incredibly distressing and I know that will be the the common story for many people listening here with the rates of dementia and Alzheimer's increasing so rapidly. But he finds that when he goes in and he starts to play music, he can get them to sing and they will remember, it might be a wartime song, you know, Run Rabbit Run or whatever, you know, one of the favourites, or it might be old hymns that they sang at Sunday school. And suddenly you transform these elderly people who have can't remember their own name, but they start to come alive as their brain is somehow wired with the connection of the music. And not only do they then sing and enjoy the experience, but when their carer comes to pick them up, they actually have sparks of recognition. It's almost as if it's reignited those neurons that have been so damaged. Such a powerful story. And it absolutely reinforces my sense that music has this ability to take you to places and to rather like um, scents sometimes, you know, if you yes. smell a perfume of, a, sure. of, of an old lover or something like that, mm. it can bring you back to that person. Immediate. Yeah. Music can take you to places and to times and to incidents and to uh, things that you had forgotten about. Just suddenly you'll hear a song and you're in a, a different place. And I, that must be activating something in your brain that maybe survives the ravages of, of, of the terrible ravages of a disease like dementia. Absolutely fascinating. I think we're all inspired listening to you to rush off, not only to listen to your podcast, but to get more involved and immersed in the therapeutic powers of music. Uh, stay with us, Matthew, because after the break, I want to move on and talk a little bit about career changes and the choices that you've made, which I think could also further inspire everybody listening. So we'll be back in just a moment. Thank you. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Well, welcome back. And honestly, Matthew, I, I kind of feel like stopping the podcast here and going off and playing some tunes, actually, because I'm just so inspired by the, the power of music. But I also am really looking forward to unpicking a little bit about your career journey, too. And as I just said in the very beginning of my intro, we didn't know each other until we met in the BBC Radio 4 studio of The Bottom Line with the business broadcaster Evan Davis. And we were both there to talk about managing change, you during your time as a controller at, at the BBC, BBC Radio, um, and me from a more sort of entrepreneurial, smaller scale business. So perhaps it would be lovely to, to talk a little bit about that. But should we go back to, to the start? You know, what was your dream when you were fresh out of Nottingham University? Did you always have sound and music in your mind? Uh, well, yes. And um, I actually didn't really know when I was at university. Uh, when I was at university, I spent most of my time in the theatre, even though I was supposed to be studying law. So um, uh, I became obsessed with both acting in and directing plays at university. And I, I thought that might be a career that I could follow. And I, in fact, applied to study a postgraduate course in theatre directing at Cardiff University. Uh, but my parents uh, wanted me to get a safe job and they said they wouldn't give me any money to go and study theatre directing, which they considered to be very risky. Yes. So I thought I'd better have another string to my bow. And I, a friend of mine had gone to work at the BBC local radio station and I had a conversation with him and said, do you think, you know, I'd always loved radio. My father was a big radio buff. In fact, my father had uh, lots of reel-to-reel -reel tapes of classic 
BBC comedies that he'd taped off the radio and that I grew up listening to. Hancock's Fabulous. Half Hour, yes. The Navy Lark. Oh, gosh, um, yeah, same. All, all these ones. Mm. Um, and, and so radio had been a big, uh, and particularly talk radio, actually, had been a big part of my life. But I didn't really understand that you could work in it until my friend had got his job there. So I wrote to Radio Nottingham and said, you know, have you got any jobs? And fortuitously for me they just completed their first experiment with having a graduate trainee and he had been promoted and got a job so they had a vacancy for a graduate trainee so I was interviewed and offered that job in the same week that my local authority sent me a a thing saying I could have a grant of £958 a year to study theatre directing in Cardiff. The BBC contract said I was going to earn £3,000 a year as a trainee reporter. And I, I have to say that both the combination of the, my love of radio and the money that won one. out. And, mm-hmm. and also my parents are absolutely delighted I was going to get what they considered to be a safe job with the BBC and yes. not a, a terribly risky job going round trying to be a freelance theatre director. So how then did you move up the ladder at the BBC? Did you stay within the BBC? Because obviously you ended up with you know like the plum prize job in radio. Well, I... I I did a lot of reporting. I moved out of the BBC to Capital Radio in London for a time uh, where I did reporting. Um, I presented Newsbeat on Radio 1 and then I went back to Capital as head of news. Um, And it was from there that I got into my first management job, which was running the BBC's London radio station, which I relaunched as Greater London Radio. And that became a bit of a cult station. Um, It's where we launched the careers of people like um, Chris Evans, Chris Morris, Danny Baker, Emma Freud. So it it became a bit of a, a, like a bit of a forerunner of BBC Six Music, I suppose. It was a mixture of speech and music aimed at a kind of adult uh, rock audience. um, And uh, it became, you know, quite a quite a cult success. And, and what then, year? What year are we talking about? So we're talking about the late eighties, early nineties. Right. So the relaunch happened in nineteen eighty nine, and and I was there for for three years, and it was I was given three years to save it basically because the BBC was thinking of closing down its big city uh, local radio stations, and uh, so we we changed the format. We hired all this new talent. We had some established names there too. People like Annie Nightingale did uh, programmes there, Johnny Walker, Tommy Vance, uh, legendary Radio 1 names. Mm. Um, And once we'd got a reprieve for it, I began to look around for another job and I I got a job in the corporate centre of the BBC looking into the, the renewal of its charter, basically, and running... They set up 15 task forces to look into every aspect of the BBC's activities. And I worked with some consultants called McKinsey to run those task forces. And the idea was that nothing was off the table, so we could have radical thinking. And eventually we were to distill down these 15 reports into one report, which would be the BBC's pitch for the renewal of its charter. So it was like doing an MBA in the BBC for me. It allowed me to roam roam around the place asking difficult questions, looking at the analysis um, and working more closely then with the senior figures in the BBC, the Director General, the Chairman of the Board and so on. So I I learnt an enormous amount there. Um, And it was from there that I then applied for the Radio 1 job. And I mean, that was such a job because you are responsible single-handedly aren't you really for the total repositioning of BBC Radio 1 and I guess with that the then changes to to Radio 2 that have happened it was really interesting when I met you in the studios there to hear about that journey because I grew up with that you know I'm I'm in my late 50s and I remember the early days of Radio 1 but when you took over as controller your 
your goal was to lose the audience, wasn't it? Essentially, well, in a way. <laughs> in a yes. way. I mean, my, my goal was I, mean, I had to do two things really. One was to reposition Radio One to make sure that it was attracting a young audience because its audience had been drifting older and older since it had started in 1967. And a lot of the baby boomers who had listened then were still listening in 1993 when I I took over. And there was a, a, a lot of new commercial radio coming along and there was a big danger that the whole of BBC Radio was just drifting older and older and that the young audience would be taken entirely by commercial radio. So that was the first task, was to reposition for a younger audience and the second was to to save radio 1 from privatization you know the, the political threat was people were saying well why does the bbc need to do a pop music station anyway there are going to be lots of commercial pop music stations what makes radio 1 different and my job was to emphasize its difference from commercial radio now both of those things were pretty much guaranteed to lose listeners because effectively what we were doing was saying to the older listeners, well, we don't really want you anymore, and there are large millions of them, um, and also saying we're going to make the output more challenging and less populist, less like commercial radio, which again is guaranteed to make people go off and and turn to something less demanding. So there was a a, a row about it. You know, there there was controversy as the audience figures fell, and it became a very public uh, debate in, in the papers, in the tabloids and the broadsheets and and elsewhere as to whether we were doing the right thing. But I think now you unquestionably did do the right thing. And in fact, you're credited pretty much single-handedly with inventing Britpop and giving a platform to to young upcoming musicians who wouldn't have been played on the commercial stations. That's exactly it. I mean, that's exactly how we set about making ourselves different. So we said, look, um, commercial radio plays tried and tested hits. You know, they're playing the big familiar music Mm -hmm. that is guaranteed to get them the biggest audiences. We want to give a platform to artists who wouldn't otherwise be heard. And I suppose a, a great example of this, I mean, surprising though it sounds now, is Oasis. You know, Oasis, we started playing before they even had, in fact, they played live for us on Radio 1 before they even had a record out so that nobody had ever heard of them. And I think it was about a year before commercial radio even picked up on Oasis, who we were playing really heavily. But within two years, they were playing the biggest ever gig at Nebworth to (laughs) 250,000 people. And we followed that whole journey, and we were broadcasting that gig not just to the UK, but to the world. And it was a great example of, of what we did. We, we went out on a limb to support bands like Oasis and Blur and Pulp and Suede, who became those you know iconic Britpop bands. Um, and we did that before anybody else got onto them. And, and then they paid us back by loyalty and supporting us as we went forward. And of course, that was benevolent too, because young people wanted to hear the latest new music. So mm. attracting a young audience also came from doing that. It's so interesting and, and so interesting how you take change and and make it a success. And I think a lot of people will be very interested to hear how you kind of you buck the trend. And, you know, you were saying that your success there was actually in losing audience numbers, but gaining in terms of having a younger audience who then presumably get built up and and now that the stations are thriving. I do get a sense that Radio 4 now, which, you know, used to be my mainstay, is also potentially trying to alienate the older listener. I don't know whether that's deliberate, but 
you know, is is that a culture in radio? Do you think? I mean, more generally, I don't know whether you're allowed to. Well, I think I think it's a problem for the BBC, and mm. it always is a problem. And of course, the the best way of dealing with it is not through radical change. You know, the 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 ideal way of doing it is by constant refreshment. Mm. So you'll you'll notice that you know, Radio One in the 1990s when I was running it took a st- big step change, which was controversial because. They didn't move Radio 2 at the same time. And at that time, Radio 2 was aiming for a kind of over 60 audience. So there was this big gap between us targeting 15 to 24-year-olds and Radio 2 targeting the over 60s. And, you know, millions of listeners in the middle wanted Radio 1 and a half, which the BBC didn't (laughs) give them until it started to move Radio 2 um, a a couple of years later. But um, you'll notice that there hasn't been a step change since then. And yet the lineup of Radio 1 now, of presenters who are on Radio 1, completely different from the one that was there, you know, 10 years ago. And, and what they've been doing is gradually refreshing it from within, gradually bringing new people on, and also, crucially, which I think we should have been able to do and weren't, moving talented presenters from one BBC station to another. So Scott Mills has just moved from Radio 1 to Radio 2 to yeah. take on the afternoon show where yeah. Steve Wright has moved on. And and that kind of thing, which is causing a bit of a, a, a kerfuffle, <laughs> yes. you know. But you know, they should be doing that kind of thing the whole time. And and obviously, colleagues have done since uh, the days of of the repositioning of Radio One. But it needed the step change because mm. nobody had thought to to do the gradual refreshment before. And then, of course, you get disruptors like us who come along with our podcasts. I mean, who could have predicted the phenomenal rise and success of podcasts? And it's almost, well, it is, isn't it? It's radio on demand. It's who you want to listen to, talking about what you want to listen to, whenever you want to listen to it. So the role of the controllers and the commissioners massively diminished. And, you know, that must be a concern for radio broadcasters. I think two things. I mean, I think, A, I think it's incredibly exciting. You know, just speaking as somebody who loves radio, the idea that a thousand or a million new voices are able to be heard and that you can go out there and pick what you want to listen to more specifically and you're not in the thrall to the big schedulers is Mm. great. You know, I think think it's a wonderful democratic kind of uh, (laughs) way and I hope that the industry continues to have a thousand flowers blooming of course if you're inside the bbc it's a threat you know and and the bbc's had to reach out and embrace podcasting and of course in in its own way it's invested heavily in podcasting but i think if you're looking at this from the point of view of radio one there are far bigger threats than that which are the young people are becoming not really interested in radio at all you know that there are so many competing uh, sources of entertainment you know tiktok YouTube, you know, there, there are so many. So Radio 1, in, in the time since I worked there, when I, I didn't have to contend with any of this, but my successors there have made it into a multimedia brand. And I think it should be judged just as much on how many people watch its YouTube channel and how many people engage with its social media as it is on, on its listening figures, because mm. that's how young people now experience music and whole bands, you know, bands' careers are being based on TikTok now. Um, and yeah. so... That's a, a much more fascinating and interesting challenge, it seems to me, for Radio One to become this multimedia brand, not just a radio station. It's there's always so much change, isn't there? And the world is changing so fast. For you personally, you made a massive change because after that extraordinary time at Radio One, and you must have felt that you were, you know, not just firefighting, but kind of sitting right on top of the engine at some times because you had the media to deal with as well as the audience figures and and the broadcasters themselves and the internal workings of the BBC. 
but did you then leave that and completely go out on a limb and decide, actually, do you know what, guys, I'm just going to do my own podcast? I mean, how did that happen? Well, it wasn't quite as simple as that. I mean, after Radio 1, I, I got promoted. So uh, I became director of BBC Radio in charge of all the BBC's radio stations. And then I became chief executive of BBC Production, which was in charge of all the TV and radio production in England. So a big, in fact, the biggest production house in Europe, both radio, television and online, everything from the Natural History Unit to, to the proms. Good and, and, and then I became director of marketing at the BBC. But I, I began to get very unhappy. And, you know, as I, as I apparently on paper got more successful and went up the greasy pole to become number three in the whole organisation, I found myself less and less satisfied with my job and more and more frustrated and I realised that I completely lost touch with the creative process, which is what I got into the business to do in the first place. And, and when you're a controller of Radio 1, then you're definitely in touch with the creative process. Mm -hmm. You're picking talent, you're designing schedules, you're looking at music policy, and, and that's brilliantly satisfying. But the further up the pole you go, the more you become a bureaucrat, yeah. the more you become somebody who's dealing with internal competition, with um, endless... Um, repetitive meetings, budget papers, <laughs> mm. boards, meetings, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I just realised, I, I I hate this. <laughs> I don't really right. enjoy it. So yeah. I took the decision in the year two thousand just to step off. And my partner, who is an executive coach, said to me that sometimes you have to you have to leave room for the next thing to come along. Um, and and I had a sort of ambition that I would like to get back to broadcasting you know, back to being on the radio. And I thought, when was I happiest? I was happiest working with a small team of like-minded creative people to put out a really interesting radio programme every day or every week. And I mm. wonder if they'd let me do that again. And it took two years. So I had two years when I left the BBC, when I did, uh, I, I was chair of a, a, an internet startup company for a time and I uh, wrote about radio for The Times. And then eventually... I, uh, one of the, the controller of Radio Five Live allowed me to go back on the air in a really dud slot um, Saturday and Sunday nights doing the weekend news, uh, which is the time when nobody <laughs> listens to the radio because they they all watch television or go uh, out. Right. Um, but it was a great way to get back on after yeah. such a long gap. Uh -huh. And then you know, ever since then, I've been broadcasting, and I'm so much happier. Yes, but that's astonishing to to leave one of the plum jobs. I mean, so much power and influence and and prestige with that, for 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 not much, just to kind of step foot into the great unknown. Did you feel incredibly brave? Did your friends all ring you up and tell you you were mad? Well, some of them did. Yes, I mean, I felt very frightened in a way because I felt that, you know, as I'd gone up, you know, looking at a career that kind of advanced, you know, in the traditional way, going up the hierarchy, you start to believe that you need the trappings and the symbols of status in order to exist. So, you know, I had a personal assistant and I had a chauffeur-driven car um, and I had a very good salary and, mm. you know, and I had lots of people who deferred to me and a title that would open doors and that people would recognise. And and I did feel when I was taking the decision that 
that I might not even exist without all those you know, kind of suits of armour around yeah. me. Yeah, they, they um, validate you, don't they, in some way? Yes, exactly. And uh, who was I if I wasn't the chief executive of BBC production or whatever title I had at the time? You know, who, who was I about to be? But my unhappiness was so great that I thought it was worth the risk. And I haven't regretted it for a moment because the, the joy of going back to the shop floor... And I had to also be very careful when I did that because, you know, not within living memory, I'd been the boss of some of these people I was now working with as a, as a presenter. And, you know, I'm sure they were looking at me to see whether I was going to throw my weight around or behave badly. And I, I made an absolute resolution that I was going to be a humble working presenter doing as I was told by the editor, part of the team, and not putting on any airs and graces or anything that came from my past status. And and that was how I got myself accepted back in there, that I was prepared to go on on Saturday and Sunday nights when nobody much was listening. Um, and I was prepared to put in the hours and, and do the time to, to make it a success. And it, it, it's been absolutely joyful. It's so inspiring. I have just absolutely loved our conversation. I think you've managed to bring in so much inspiration and so much joy, which is really what we try and do here at Lizelle Wellbeing. And you have so successfully managed to combine your skills and your passions, radio music, with Folk on Foot. I wish you many, many more listeners. I know that I, for one, will be going off to download The Nightingales in the Forest. Thank you so much for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure, Liz. I've really enjoyed it. Oh, I so enjoyed that conversation and I really hope that it has further inspired you to head off outdoors. Maybe take some of the family or a few friends with you for some New Year's fresh air and fresh reflections on life. I think the power of music and sound in general is one area of our well-being that definitely deserves a bit more airtime, literally. And I know that I shall be a regular listener to Folk on Foot now, brought to life even more now that I've heard these behind-the-scenes snippets and the backstory. Very best of luck to Matthew and his team with it. Well, do let me know about your emotional relationship with music too. I'd love to hear your stories. The team and I are on social media at Lizelle Wellbeing and I am at Lizelle Me. And you can also leave a comment on your podcast platform to help inspire and encourage others to take a listen. Just pop a note in the review section after you've listened. And to make sure that you don't miss any of the very fascinating conversations that we're going to be having right here in the year ahead, just click the follow button on your podcast app so you know when every new episode is uploaded and available well until the next time we chat have a very happy calm and joyful new year go very well bye-bye the lizelle wellbeing show is presented by me lizelle and is produced by anushka tate for fresh air production with additional production support from ellie smith Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.